Hello all, we are here again on the couches in Rob's office and it's a beautiful sunny day outside, a lot warmer than it has been for a while actually. And we've been talking about teaching toughness, um, how to how to be parents that prepare our children for the, for the world out there, but how to not build brittle children, children that are going to break easily, that are going to um, struggle uh, when they actually have to face face the world. So what now, Rob? What, what more do you have to say? Yeah, Stu, and I have a smile on my face because I notice now since I've dazzled you with these throws, throws on the couch, you don't know how to, how to describe them anymore. So <laughs> I notice that it's, it's not so easy to, to kick off with, a, with an arrow to my heart. Look, I'll, I'll find a few others very easily if you want me to. Look around, plenty to find. So, Stu, yes, I'm going to pick on again a few things that uh, you know I still think are, are good for us as parents as guidelines, general principles. Um, so, moving on, uh, I think here of a psychologist, I'm pretty sure his surname is Golwitzer. So, you know, all psychologists have to have strange names, surnames. That's why I became a psychologist. And, and psychologist by the name of Golwitzer came up with the concept of when then. And the idea would be that you imagine into a situation that could cause challenge or difficulty. And it's not that you try to sugarcoat that imagined scenario, but rather that you come up with what you're going to do when you get there. So you, I think it's quite helpful if our kids are sort of pre-event or pre-challenge to help them to imagine into that space. Help them to summon up with that imagination what it feels like. Because, again, it's very difficult to say to someone, don't be nervous. Chances are very, very high that they will be nervous. But it's more around when you're nervous, then what will you remember? What will you do? And I've really found that a helpful way of talking with my kids about challenging um, uh, projects or tasks that that lie ahead for them. When that happens, what are you going to do? Or when you know you're in this position, what will you remember? Helping them to focus on stuff that they can control. So a when-then strategy, I think, is something very useful for us in terms of preparing our kids for the next time they meet a challenge that is likely to be tough. So would you, would you go into, like, into specific scenarios and specific situations that you think that they may face, like, a, I don't know, an oral at school and actually get them to talk through what they would do when they're feeling nervous standing up there or about to go and stand up there and talk to the class. Yeah, precisely. Remembering that anxiety very much feeds off our imagination. So you're going to something that's active anyway. And if our kids have performance anxiety, they will be carrying imagined scenarios, usually not clear, vague in their minds. We're helping them to bring it out into the light. It's like, oh, God, what are you imagining? What do you, what can you imagine will happen? You know, what's the worst that could happen? Um, you know, I'll freeze. You know, uh, I'll forget my words. And so we go to these dreaded circumstances, and we help our kids as much as possible, Stu, to imagine what they will do when then when. Then what will you do? What will you remember? What will you take hold of to help you in your imagination to get over that hurdle? So this makes sense. The only thing that worries me is that if I think of myself, I'm a bit of an overthinker. I know this about myself. And, uh, and sometimes I think I actually need to calm my mind from those, 
future scenarios. I don't know where that fits in, Rob. I think it's true, Stu, that realizing that we are imagining stuff, that we're thinking forward and then bringing ourselves back to where we are now, using our breath, using the people around us to talk to, to to focus on other things that we can actually control is, is a good practice. It's just I still think if we are being you know, terrorized by some imagined scenario, it can be really helpful for a child to explain that scenario to a a loving adult, a loving parent, who can then help them just, even if it's just for that day, imagine what they would do or will do if when they get there. So I think it helps the child to park it, if you like, and get on with the rest of their day. So Friday's the oral. We do a a when-then conversation with our kids on Wednesday. I think that the rest of Wednesday might be a little calmer for the child because they're not busy trying to solve the problem of Friday, you know, for the rest of, of, of of their stressful Wednesday. Okay, no, that that that's very helpful, Rob. And um, and I and and would you would you ever just a final thing? Would you ever sort of point out some ideas of what they could actually do in, in the situation if they do freeze or if they, you know, they just go blank or they just the tears well up or? Absolutely, I think that's the thing is, and they need our help to be honest. Um, I think even older kids who might have a good idea of things for themselves, it's very helpful to talk through ideas and ways of coping. And we as parents can oftentimes call on things that we know work for us or help us. I think it's really nice for kids to to talk about those those ideas of what should I do? Because and they will need it actually, Stu, because invariably they where they will feel, I don't know what I will do. They'll feel stuck. They'll feel helpless. That's where we step in and give them principled, concrete guidelines of, tell you what, you do this, I'll be flippin' impressed. That on its own, but is a big win. Just do that, you know. So we can really structure it in a way that uh, they can be affirmed in their imagination of around, ah, oh, no, no, dad has given me, this is what I'm going to do. You know, it's that kind of thing. So it doesn't have to be fancy, but I do think we need to come up with a lot of the ideas for our kids. And maybe you could just, I know there's, there's there's many different scenarios, but maybe you could pick a couple and you could say like, this is what I would say. Like if a kid's saying he arrives at an exam and he's he's com- just completely starts to, to, you know, the anxiety inside of Riser because he sees the first question. I mean, what, what are just very practical things that you would say to a kid? Exam anxiety is a big topic and I won't do it justice now. But Stu, what I always do say to young people is first of all to understand, yeah, there's that feeling. It's a physiological thing. And I like kids to practice dealing with exam anxiety even before an exam by imagining themselves into that space. What happens with the anxiety is that it, it freezes up working memory and gives us a ghastly feeling of not being able to think or of forgetting everything that we've learned. So um, I help a child to practice that skill. It's kind of like a breathing technique, again, a, a sort of a centering, a clearing of the mind. And that usually unlocks the working memory enough for the child to then go back to the problem. But I also say to him, practice it today. Imagine you're in that situation. Bring up the, the, the feelings of anxiety that come with that test. Do a practice paper. Put yourself in the shoe in the situation, in the shoes of, of a person doing that. And then yes, calm yourself as you, and then access your working memory again and get back to the problem. So you start to realize I can do this. 
you know, you start to get um, a real experience of that. And maybe one other, just if someone's, I don't know, about to head out for a soccer game, you know, and is is highly anxious. I mean, that when then idea, what, what would you do? Yeah, that's right. So what I do again there would be ask them about the position that they're playing, you know, where do they stand? Maybe ask them to pick on one or two particular skills or tasks that that position carries. So, you know, focus on that. What are you going to do? You know, head down. I'm not a soccer player. So watch the ball, you know, you know, stay, stay in line, watch where you need to stand. Give them concrete guidelines to, to actually have in their minds around, this is what I'm going to do. This is my bare minimum. A lot of stuff I can't control, but these three things I can control as I head off to my soccer game. This is what I'm focusing on. And when that whistle goes, this is what I'm going to do. It's really helpful stuff, Rob. Thanks. I was just thinking about the exam anxiety. I don't think I ever had it, but it's because... You know, I didn't have any, I hadn't learned anything before the exam, so it was gonna, it was gonna go how it was gonna go. Stu Walker, I feel for your parents terribly. Gosh, no. So um, yeah, what what else do you have there, Rob? So the other thing that I thought is quite often parents and kids will say, or the parents will tell me that they say to their their, their kids. I don't push my kids, I just ask them to do their best. And all kids will say to me, all mum or all dad wants from me is that I do my best. And I understand that that is said with love and reassurance. And I think that nine times out of 10, kids get the message. They know that really all the parents are saying is, we back you, just give what you can. I think though that for quite a few kids, it's really helpful to be clear for them around not so much do your best, but what is it that I want you to do? Break it down. What does what does your best look like when you're in grade six, grade seven, grade eight? Assuming that it's probably the demand is going to go up, you know, the higher a person goes. But for little kids and then kids as they get older, what does do your best actually look like? So I'm always wanting that we take kids towards concrete goals that they can focus on, that they can know this is doing my best. This is what mom and dad mean. Because obviously, if you just take the phrase, well, how do you know? And you could always do a little bit more. So you might just feel like, I'm not sure that I did my best. I think we need to break it down, particularly for kids who are inclined to worry about performance. So I'm sorry, I'm going to push you again here, Rob. But so, I mean, what would you say is a child you know how would you talk to a child about this is what i think your best is when it comes to schoolwork or studying for exams very often i will separate out outcome goals from process goals and i'll be interested to know what sorts of marks children are aiming for and um, if they're worried about it unlike stu walker then they're aiming for high marks they want to get good marks and they're worried about not getting those marks okay so it becomes a performance issue for them and I say to them, that's brilliant. I really admire you for setting those kinds of challenging goals, outcome goals, what they're looking for. And then what I, I take them to would be the process goals, Stu, the getting there. So, you know, you're telling me this now, but you're a month off the exam. What's your today goal? How do you get there so that you can start to break it down into 
doable steps that the child can bank and build confidence through. I do know that if it comes to exam anxiety, unfortunately, the number one strategy for avoiding exam anxiety is knowing your stuff. <laughs> I can't say to a child who hasn't studied, you know, it should be fine. You know, they'll see that, no, Rob, you're conning me here. We both know I'm going down, you know. So it helps to know our stuff. And I want a child to arrive at an exam feeling like I've done my part. And... And that the children that maybe they, they maybe they use that anxiety to do the process stuff, you know, and, and actually work through it, but then they get too much into it. They 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 study too hard. Yes, they, that's true. You I mean they overdo it. So their process goals are actually bad because they're over the top. That's what I'm saying is that we've got to break down for, for kids what do your best means. We really do, especially for kids who push themselves too much. We've got to help them stew there. And oftentimes, one of the values that I'm wanting to instill, my daughter at the moment, in fact, all my kids push themselves hard in their particular pursuits. For all of them, and I mean, I really admire them for that. They they go for what, what they're interested in. They really, really do. But... You've got to get that balance, don't you, Stu, between output and then rest. And for a lot of kids, I've got to get them to value good rest as much as they value good work. And it's not that easy. It's surprisingly difficult for me to get kids to actually value good rest. So they will work really hard and then only half rest. It's like a spoiled rest because they spend most of their time worrying that they aren't working. So what is good rest, Rob? Well, what I go to would be this kind of off on analogy like if you're going to rest and I mean I, I talk it up quite a bit I say you've got to impress me a lot I'm talking I want to be seriously impressed by your morning of no work I want to hear that you've made you know the world's best hamburger ever seen I want to hear that you lay in your bed and wriggled around and found the most comfortable spot for at least half an hour I'm wanting you to be properly off I talk with them about about not being half off you know so when you work go for it give it everything but when you off you'd better be properly off and obviously it's a mind thing as well I encourage the child to practice focusing their minds on other things uh, watching that they don't have work or training in the back of their minds even as they're trying to rest or watch a movie or whatever else it might be and you know usually too good rest will involve physical but also probably social not talking about work not talking about the upcoming event or sporting challenge that they have so just ways of being really really wise I understand from research that one of the hallmarks of good rest is that it's got no goals to it. So if a person says they're going to go for a run, I say you better not time yourself. You better just run or walk or listen to your body and you've got to tell me how many birds you notice along the way and you know the sorts of sights and scenes of nature that you could enjoy. So don't measure it, don't have goals would be an important hallmark of good rest. Thanks, Rob. I am um, just a little a little add-on from me here. I found has been really useful is that I saw something a while ago that talked about just 10 minutes of your brain shutting off from what it's been working on and becoming present with something that you find beautiful. You know, whether it's a tree or birds or the sounds or this person that you're with or whatever it is, but but just focusing all your attention and your energy, um, it allows your brain to rest uh, because you, I don't know what you think of that. I think that's lovely. 
So there's quite a strong study that's looked into high-performing adults across uh, their careers. And what the study finds is that um, high-performing adults who do what you're describing within their days, within their weeks, they have regular proper breaks, downtimes where you're appreciating, noticing, you're, you're living, you're not trying to perform or achieve something. Um, if they do that on that sort of regular intermittent basis, over the course of a career, they're likely to be healthier, happier, and outperform those executives who work and work and work and work until they crash, take a kind of a mandatory month break just because if they don't, they, you know, they're going to die, come back to work, push themselves back up into that 90, 100% sort of bandwidth, and they crash again down the line. So it's not worth it. It's not worth it for the person and, and his or her family, that poor adults, but it also actually does, it's less productive, according to the study. So what a wonderful thing that if we can help our kids uh, learn that at an early age and and develop that. And then back to what I said last episode, which is let's not underestimate the ordinary. That in families, really, it's it's not about, you know, being the best family in, in South Africa or the world. It's about being ordinary. It's about caring for each other. It's the ordinary spaces. It's not performance. Mm. This is the thing about parenting is that, you know, it's not something that people are going to get awards for. You're not going to be measured for it. It's about being. It's about about community. It's about enjoyment. It's about connection, those sorts of things. And those are really what nourish us for the hard challenges that wait for us in the world out there. Beautiful. Thanks, Rob.